Welcome to Think Like a Penguin, The Art of Flying. This is the podcast to help you think outside the box, live more confidently against the grain and become your more authentic self. Penguins don't traditionally fly, but what's to say they won't one day? Hello, hello, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in again. I'm really excited about this episode and the topic of communication. I think there is so much value in learning how to communicate better, how to use communication to understand each other, to connect. It's a vital part of human interaction. So really excited to get stuck in. I've got my cup of tea. I've got my notes, got some little um, kind of, what are these, flyers that I've printed out. I've got so much, I need to not waffle on and hope that I cover everything in a succinct way. I am at home, so Apologies if the sound quality isn't amazing. My cat will probably come so high at some stage, but let's get started. So five ways in which to communicate. They are, there's many. Obviously we can communicate with our body language, we can communicate with sound, we can communicate with written word, with noises, with um, actions and behaviors. So I would just like to suggest five different ways in which you can potentially communicate, let's say a positive thing to somebody rather than a negative thing. So have something in mind and then try and come up with five different ways in which you can express what it is you're trying to communicate. So one way might be actions. So just doing a beautiful gesture. I'm going to talk about love languages a little bit later, but people will receive the message you're trying to communicate in various different ways in a more efficient way. So pick one that you think will be received in the best way, depending on the person you're trying to communicate with. Another way would be writing a letter. I think it's something that we've lost the art of writing letters. We don't really do it much. It's such a shame because everything's so virtual and online these days. But I think there's such a beauty in receiving an unexpected letter in the post, handwritten note, that would be, for me, far more uh, valued than getting an email. So that's a lovely one. A phone call, obviously. I was talking to my girlfriend about the challenges around screens at the moment and trying to get the kids off using screens. And I think the same is true of trying to encourage people to talk. So if you can't physically be in the same room as someone, I think uh, going to reach the phone and actually ring them rather than text them. There's so much value and merit in that. And it can be quite daunting um, for those of you that hate a phone call, but I think that would be a really lovely place to try and challenge or grow in confidence around that area. Because yes, if we can't have a phone call conversation, potentially That's a bit of a source for concern in my eyes. And you'll see why when we go through the rest of the content in this podcast episode. Leaving little notes is something that I quite like to do, usually just smiley faces or sickeningly romantic little notes or cute little things or drawings for the kids or just feel good notes. Again, not really something that happens much, but when I worked in an office, I would do this. I got told off for wasting sticky notes, but really I think the value gained from people receiving a cute little sticky note was far, far greater than 
any potential paper loss. So um, I think as well, that's a more appropriate way to communicate to children. So a child's not necessarily going to be able to read a letter that you might write, but pop a couple of sticky notes or little cute notes in their lunchbox and that's going to go a long way to making their day. And then the other way is simply just starting a conversation with a stranger. So all of these things, there's just five quick ways in which we can communicate, which is different from the go-to, which is usually just text or email. So I challenge you guys um, to try one of the five or all five at some stage in the near future. And I think you'll be very pleasantly surprised with the outcome of communicating in one of those five ways. So you might be wondering why I chose the topic of communication today. I've been working at a school here in Perth with some year 11 and 12 students, so they're all boys. And each week I do about three to five hours of research and note-taking and planning for the session. So the sessions are two and a half hours long and quite a challenging age group in that they are almost men, they're at the end of their education, they don't really think it's cool to listen to me um, and they don't necessarily want to be there with me but they've been picked to take part in artwork sessions at the school. So I want to make the, the sessions fun and engaging for them and normally I split it in half so we'll do an art kind of project or a little activity, a creative activity and then they go in the gym or they'll do more of a physical activity. And on this particular day, when we um, had the theme of communication, we actually beautifully spoke for the whole session. So for the whole two and a half hours, we didn't do anything. We just spoke about communicating and then that opened up a really beautiful, vulnerable space for some of the kids to share. And I think it was one of the most enriching conversations um, I've had with that age group but also the feedback they gave me made me realize they'd come up with some poignant things and I wanted to put that into a podcast because I think there's a lot to be um, learned in this space so that's why we're going with communication one of the main things I noticed through my research and through just delivering sessions for the past term to this group of boys is just how different men and women communicate and I delved into this deeper I watched some TED talks and um, did some research and some reading because I wanted to know is it just a myth or are there actual fundamental ways in which people communicate differently depending on if they are male or female obviously there's a spectrum and I said this to the boys the students and all of us at some stage will fall on one end or the other end and we're going to change the way that we approach communication. But there was a few key standouts. So what I did, I cut out some little one-liners or just one word and I got the students to put them into piles of either they thought that this was more of a prominent way of communicating or a thought associated to boys and the same for the girls pile. So they had to split these attributes between girls and boys. They didn't get them all right, but it was quite interesting to then talk about a few of them. So I'm just going to read some of them out here. So um, more expressive in body 
and facial language. Um, value intimacy more. More expansive and open with their gestures and their stance. High self-esteem. Oh, sorry. High estimates of intelligence. Social groups with stable hierarchies. Anxious. Value emotional connection. Sensitive. Polite. And the list goes on and on. There was probably about 30 attributes all in all. A few really surprised me and stood out and I thought about them with a bit more detail because I wanted to then equate that to why certain communications break down or why it's challenging in certain situations between men and women or boys and girls, especially around the teenage age. And I want to understand how communication could be better through appreciating the differences between the two genders. So a couple here that I've asterisked that stood out for me is one gender um, is usually on the spectrum, usually more interested in people and the other one is usually more interested in things. So males in general are more interested in things and females are more interested in people. So why is that important? So if a man spends loads of time on his car, and this is very superficial and a very black and white example, but puts rims on the car, decks it out with the best sound system, beautiful leather seats, um, all with the view of expecting, because he values things, then therefore his partner, if they are female, may value things. So he's doing all of this in the hope to um, impress his, his female partner. Whereas all of that time, if the outcome, desired outcome is to impress his partner, all of that time he spent on his car, if he just spent a little bit longer with the, his girlfriend, then she would have appreciated that more. And same as, unfortunately, for the girlfriend, even though she might want to spend way more time with him one-on-one -on -one and utilising that time just for human connection, she has to appreciate that he values um, communication and connection to things. So having that understanding allows for, hopefully, a distilling of the conflict because, on average, men will prefer things and women will prefer people. One that I thought was really interesting is that on average, in general, men prefer to hang around in groups, whereas women prefer one-on-one -on -one connection. So dyadic connection, I hope I've said that right, D-Y-A-D-I-C. So whereas men really thrive in a group-like situation, almost like when they were in a tribe back in the you know, caveman times, females in general prefer that one-on-one, -on -one best friend, soulmate, um, individual connection. They will thrive in communicating more in that environment. So it's really important for women to appreciate that men have to and should prioritise time with their mates in groups. So then going to the pub isn't them avoiding you, it's actually really important and valuable for them is a way to communicate, to chat, to feel a part of something, to um, just thrive in communication. Whereas 
men also have to appreciate that the women don't necessarily want to be in a big group situation and they might feel a bit safer or more comfortable or enjoy a one-on-one connection. So it's appreciating the differences and obviously compromising and meeting a middle ground or when a bloke wants to go out with his male friends, the female has to appreciate that's necessary and to not get jealous and not to get threatened by that because that's just how they, on general, in on average, that's how they function better. All right, the next one that I thought was really, un, um, really, really important was that women, on average, want to be understood. Men, on average, want to be needed. And I think this was the biggest takeaway for me, especially with the troubles around masculinity, men feeling a bit stuck, um, men maybe not knowing what their purpose is as a whole species in the world. I think men are struggling a bit to know where their place is or their, what their purpose is. I think that's why masculinity, so getting big and bulky, has become the new masculinity. Because back in the day, so this is kind of innate, this is built into us, or sorry, built into men, they were needed to be the hunters, to be the gatherers, to provide. And that's still a part of their psyche, their makeup, their their sense of purpose is to be needed. In general, women want to be understood. So unfortunately, (laughs) when men don't potentially give an ear to women, try and have active communication and conversation, I'll talk about what that means later, then women don't feel like they are valued or there's enough connection with their partner. But also, if a woman goes and does all the work and does um, all the child rearing and does all the cooking and does all of the physical things that the man feels that he could do and feel useful doing, then it's not going to create a sense of worth in the man and the partner. So knowing that men in general want to be needed for a physical action or a physical task, you you can say, you know how you would best help me is by doing X, Y, Z. Maybe hand over some of those chores, maybe hand over some of the responsibilities at home um, because that will actually empower a man to feel needed. So it's just knowing the differences and working around them. The last thing that really stood out, on average, women are self-doubting, whereas men are quite confident as a general rule. So I want, uh, had a chat with one of the students and he said, oh, miss, it's really annoying. My girlfriend just puts herself down all the time. She, everything's such a mission. Like she's got no confidence. I just find it really off-putting. Unfortunately, and I hope this isn't true for most women, but I, I have a feeling it might be, a lot of us feel like we are not good enough. A lot of us feel like we take up space, that we almost have to apologize for our existence, that, um, yeah, we're just, we're not innately confident or self-assured. And I think a lot of that comes from how we have been treated as second-rate citizens for generations. 
I won't go into why we feel like that, but I think certainly a lot of women do feel like that and they don't have the confidence to back themselves. Men in general have a much higher sense of ability or a much higher sense of self-esteem, almost a skewed opinion of how valuable they are, which obviously has its downfalls. But it's about appreciating that when a woman is putting herself down or when a woman is feeling like she's um, not able to add value to a situation, that's because that is our go-to default setting a lot of the time. And when a guy is being way overconfident, for instance, not asking for directions when he clearly has no idea where he's going, it's because they genuinely feel like they are more empowered and more um, able than they are. So these are sort of inbuilt default ways that men and women act in everyday situations and that obviously is going to then inform the way that they communicate, behave and translate in in various environments. So please try not to get cross at the opposite gender, opposite sex when you um, think that they are communicating in the wrong way. It's because they are built, their DNA, their wiring, their genetic impulse is set and um, I found that fascinating. There's so much more research on this and I'll put links in the write-up on the um, podcast notes because it's really, really fascinating. But we're already 17 minutes in and that's my first point on my list. So let us continue. So some key, key takeaways from the topic of communication. There was just two or three things that really stood out. This one, I feel like I want to have as a bumper sticker or a tattoo or my t-shirt. It is more important to be interested than to be interesting. So it's more important to show interest in other people than to try and be interesting to those people. Essentially, a lot of the time when we want to be accepted, so there's two main components of being a human being. We want to feel in control and we want to feel accepted. We take away everything else. The state of happiness and contentment essentially boils down to those two things, wanting to be in control and wanting to be accepted. So as a way to try and be accepted by people, we tend to show off, show our best side, ruffle our feathers, show our, you know, put our best foot forward, promote ourselves on Instagram, put a filter on our photos, lie a little bit, only show the good stuff. In conversation, people that have a low self, a sense of self-esteem or low self-worth will often talk non-stop about themselves because they're trying to validate their worth in the conversation, in the situation. I am absolutely guilty of doing that myself. But guaranteed, especially knowing that women want to be understood, but all people want to be seen. That, that comes back to the wanting to be accepted. So if you're struggling to connect with someone, if you really like someone and you're unsure of how to make them feel like you value their connection, or if you're just feeling like there's a bit of a gap between the communication, show genuine interest in the person you're trying to connect with. Because essentially, we communicate to connect. So we need to start actively listening. We need to start 
giving the person we're trying to communicate with more time to talk about themselves. We need to ask questions. We need to be curious. Um, I, I, I recommend that you do this next time you have a conversation with someone, a stranger, or a conversation more than three, five minutes. Just be aware of how much you talk about yourself versus how much you ask questions about the person you're talking to. I think you'll be surprised. Um, another thing is eye contact. So some people really struggle with eye contact. They find it a little bit too intense. Some people do too much eye contact. A little bit um, uncomfortable, almost like when someone stands too close to you in personal space. There's some people that just don't quite get personal space and they encroach on that and you kind of step back or you lean back and they just take a step in closer. Too much eye contact can be really daunting as well. But I believe, and I'm sure there's studies on this, I haven't looked into this one, but I just strongly believe that the best way to communicate with someone is through eye contact, acknowledging the person behind the eyes almost or within the face. If you just look at their shoulder, or if you just look at their mouth, or if you look up at the sky, or worse still, you're on your phone whilst talking to them, you're not getting that connection. We all know what it's like when we actually gaze into someone's eyes and you think, Woof, wow, I really feel, I feel a connection. I'm not even hearing them speak. Maybe they haven't even said anything, but maintaining a little bit of eye contact, obviously blink, because otherwise you look like a bit of a psycho and you freak people out. Um, also with eye contact, there's a lot in this area. I won't go into it all, but you can really tell a lot from the conversation by the way people's eyes move. So if people are trying to recall information and you're trying to gather if someone's lying or if they're really reminiscing, usually they'll look up. So they'll look up on an angle or they'll shut their eyes, but they'll slightly tilt their head. If people are lying, their eyes will dart, usually, or they'll look down. So that's quite telling. Um, and often people will express through their eyes far more and they'll say more than what they're actually saying um, with their words. So I think it's really important to um, connect with eye contact when communicating. And then the last thing I would say is smile. Super duper duper simple, but just like if someone frowned at you, you would then feel the effect of that frown. So we've all had people that just look at you like they want to hurt you or they're angry or sad. And if you, if you look at them back, you often feel the very effect that they're feeling or expressing on their face. It is near on impossible to look at someone smiling and not feel happy or a, a release of tension or even just a moment, a nanosecond of calm. And a smile lets the other person know that they are safe to communicate, safe to connect, safe to be vulnerable. And it's just lovely to receive a smile. So um, that's one of the first things I recommended to the boys in the class was if you don't even know what to say, if you don't know what to do, just smile. It's the easiest, most simple, free thing that everyone can do to everybody. Um, 
sometimes I've smiled at people and I get a, you know, F you, you weirdo, what are you looking at? Blah, blah, blah. I used to take that personally and think that I shouldn't smile at people. And then I obviously realised that that's more to do with them. They're obviously holding a lot of pain or anger and they're not able to receive the smile. More often than not, if you smile at someone, then they will gladly receive that. Simple, but very effective. And I don't think we do it enough. The last thing on communication before we go into how you communicate and how you talk and body language and whatnot is first impressions really count. So I'm sure we can all recall when we've seen someone in a room for the first time or, um, I don't know, in the, the enter into a board meeting or the sports field or in a shopping mall the very first time you see someone if you can remember that first time either they blew you away and they were charming and they were friendly and they were open and they were really chatty or probably more likely than not they did something awful or they looked awful or there was a standout characteristic they might have smelled they might have had coffee spilled all over them they might be holding 20 bags and sweating and stress and over tight, whatever. But you remember a first impression, especially if there's something exceptional or unusual about it. So when you're going into an interview or a date or you're having a tricky conversation with someone, what I usually recommend is you don't actually want to have such a powerful first impression that people have made up their mind about you before you even had a chance to communicate in other ways, i.e. verbally or through your actions or through your behaviours. You want that first impression to not leave a lasting memory, generally, because it's very hard the more powerful, significant, poignant that first impression is, it's, it's near on impossible to change the first impression. So if it's weighted really heavily in a negative realm, you've really disappointed, shocked, scared, intimidated someone with your first impression, not a good idea. If you've done the opposite, maybe, maybe good in some situations, but I think you just need to kind of blend in gently. I've learned this the hard way. I'm a naturally very open, very happy, very friendly person. Um, I made a terrible, terrible first impression by giving someone a hug that I'd never met. But I wanted to go into that situation and say, look, I'm here, I'm, I'm open, I'm friendly. I wanted to make them feel safe. I completely misread it and I regret it and I haven't actually been able to now face this person again because that was too much of a first impression. Um, I won't continue to talk about this because I think we can all hopefully draw our own examples but first impression is important. If you think oh, they're not going to notice that stain on my shirt but you want to be taken seriously like you have your you know <laughs> your shit together um, unfortunately, most people judge on a first impression, which can't be helped. It's in our nature. So just have a little think about how you want to be perceived first off. Okay. I've mentioned active listening. So there's listening where you hear what someone's saying 
And then there's active listening, where you can actually do something with what you've heard and validate the person that's just spoken and shared with you what you've just heard. So most people, when they're being spoken to, are partly listening, but at the same time, organising a response in their head. So they're thinking about what it is they want to say in return whilst the person is talking to them. This means you're not actively listening. So I tried this with the students and I said, when someone says a story or any piece of information, first of all, repeat an element of the story. And that way it shows to the person that's just shared with you that you have listened and heard what they've said. So this is fantastic when you're talking to a female because they want to know that you've heard. They want to be understood fundamentally. So repeat an element of what has been said and then add on an emotional connection to that response. So share how that made you feel, how receiving the information might have changed your internal state or an opinion or a view on it. That way it kind of layers it with I've understood and heard you plus I'm inputting my thoughts on that and that shows that I value what you've said enough to replicate it and contribute to it. I value you enough and what you've just said to share my thoughts and views on it and I've connected with you in that way and then the person you spoke to will do the same, repeat what you've said and add and it's an exchange. Unfortunately, so much of communication nowadays is either actually on a phone or through a screen or there's a phone in the way when we do this. So often what I'll get, and I'm slightly going to throw her under the bus, but from my girlfriend will be a, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, yep. And I'll say, what did I just say? And she'll repeat a couple of words and then go back to her phone. And it absolutely pisses me off because I know she hasn't actively listened. And that completely tells me, or it suggests to me, that whatever's on her phone is more important than the conversation and the communication. They're therefore more important than me. Obviously, I can step back and realise it's not actually saying that, but that's how it can be read that or come across. So if she'd popped the phone down, if she'd looked in my eyes and if she'd said, oh yeah, no, I think going to the beach would be great. I think that would make me feel, it'd be a lovely relaxing start to the day. Let's do that. Fantastic. In response to me saying, why didn't we go, how about going to the beach in the morning? So it sounds so simple, but it's, um, I just don't think it's done um, as much as it could be. So repeat an element of the story show that you've understood and heard, and then add some emotional connection or um, thoughts to what has been said as well. And I think that helps the conversation flow. Obviously, some of you will be rolling your eyes and thinking, well, yeah, obviously I know how to have a conversation. But sadly, in this day and age, I feel like a lot of us are losing the skill, especially teenagers, and it does scare me that so much of connection and communication is done online. Um, and I think just the art of talking and, and holding a conversation is being lost. And 
hopefully, even if one person can hear this and, and try it with their teenager or um, put their phone down when their kids are talking to them, then hopefully communication can come back. Um, I remember some of my best times at home with my parents and we didn't have a TV, we didn't certainly have phones and after dinner we just sit, all sit around the table and talk and that's how I learned my life lessons, that's how I knew what was going on, how we shared stories, how my imagination grew. So the art of conversation is a fantastic method to connection, which at the end of the day is what we all want. So moving on to body language, I'm sure many of you have heard this, and so I'm not going to repeat too much, but certain things around body language can help in certain situations. So if you're trying to connect with someone and the, the conversation isn't flowing very well, or maybe the conversation's going great, but you want to show even deeper that you're connected to them, if you're consciously aware that your body language does not mimic or mirror theirs, then shift your body into the same but mirrored position that they're in. So if they've got their elbow up on the bar, or if they've got their legs crossed, or if their hands are in their lap, and you're thinking, oh, I just in this moment, I just want to connect a bit more by physically mirroring their body language instantly. They won't realize it potentially, but on a subconscious level, it instantly makes for more connection. So a fantastic little tool for if you're trying to connect with a potential employer in an interview or on a date, or if you're trying to show empathy and you find it really hard to sound genuine in your empathetic kind of words then mirror body language and instantly that person will feel like you understand them more and you're more connected this was a fascinating point that I heard on one of Esther Perel's podcasts she's an incredible psychologist that mostly works with couples she's been in the industry in fact she's the pioneer of a relationship industry um, counseling so I would recommend looking into what she has to say. But one of the things that stood out months ago, she was talking to this couple who had immense amount of arguments and didn't have very effective communication, and she made them lie down. And instantly, it cracked the code. They, they simply could not shout at each other. I don't know what it did physiologically and physically, but every time and Esther goes on to say that this happens every time, the, the anger that is being held on to can't exist when both people are lying on the floor. And I thought this could potentially be fantastic for children who are having tantrums or struggling. So I've not needed to try it because I'm not really one to ever have a, a huge screaming match or an argument. I... Um, well, I guess I communicate better than to get let it get to that point, but I might try it with the kids if need be one day. Um, be interested to see if it works for you. But in the middle of an argument, if you've already agreed that that's what you might do, otherwise, obviously, your partner might think, "What are you doing?" and um, get even more cross. But if you know that this is a method you're willing to try to try and defuse an argument, I think it's worth a go. Um, I've already touched a little bit on lying. So if people say too much or not enough, if they're overcomplicating a story and filling in huge amounts of detail, 
usually that means they're lying. Obviously, if they're twitchy as well, you can tell that they're um, probably not telling the truth as well. So it's often good to know when someone's lying. This one's a bit tricky because children actually need to learn the art of lying. So if you have a child that doesn't lie, it's not a great developmental leap. So annoyingly, you want your child to lie. You, you're kind of going to feel proud when they can figure out how to lie and why it lies. It's such a fundamental part of um, progression and development. Um, we all lie. We all t- tell little white lies. If you say that you don't, you're lying right now because it's part of being a human is constantly saying little lies. Obviously, we don't want to make big ones, but if you're trying to figure out if someone lies, usually you have a gut instinct anyway. But um, we we need to encourage the thinking outside the box and trying to be a bit clever and, and sneaky. And we need to be proud of kids that lie, but also we need to obviously tell them that they can't get away with that and that's up to you guys as parents <laughs> but um yeah that one's a bit of a catch 22 but an interesting way to um to tell when people are lying nonetheless and then the other one which i thought was quite interesting is a lot of our ideas this is a bit left field but a lot of our, our ideas happen when we're in the shower and that is because There is a position of the head, 72 degrees. When you tilt the head back at a certain position, the blood flow goes to a certain part in the brain which switches on your creative thinking. So I read this in a book years and years ago and I can't find the source, but um, I just thought that was quite an interesting um, fact. And then when you are trying to recall information, as I mentioned before, you often tilt the head back and um, naturally go into that position to recall memories and to come up with some creativity. So if you're struggling with communicating, maybe in a poem, or if you're a writer, you've got writer's block, or if you're trying to recall a memory, or if you can't remember someone's name, you're at a party, you see them across the room, you think, shit, I've met that person before, I can't remember. Just tilt your head back, look up at the ceiling. You've got a higher chance of of recalling that memory or being a bit creative in that moment. So we're going to move on, uh, I just want to move on to body language. So there's just a couple of very obvious examples. If you've got your arms crossed, your legs crossed, your shoulders hunched, you're all closed in, that shows the person you're trying to communicate with that you are closed off, you're not open to receive their connection, you're vulnerable, you're in pain, you're protecting yourself. So you genuinely might be feeling all of those things. You might you might think, I, I don't want to talk to anyone, I don't want to communicate, I want to be left alone. I, I am absolutely 100% feeling all of these things. The best way to not feel like that is to open the body. So the body movement almost nudges the feeling and the mindset into the right state of being. So if I'm feeling really nervous or if I'm feeling um, really anxious before going on stage or publicly speaking or if I'm really cross or if I'm really hurt or vulnerable, anxious, if I'm a shy person and I'm all closed in, the best thing you can do 
Roll the shoulders back, release the arms, stand up, even spread the arms out wide, just broaden the chest. Instantly, those feelings will diminish. So goes both ways. I can't really think of an, a situation where you'd want to feel small and vulnerable and closed in. Um, but if you did want to, then obviously close yourself up. But um, yeah, I thought that was quite an interesting thing to prepare yourself for a challenging um, situation that you need to go into where you need to communicate. So you can always trick your feelings and your brain into reacting in a certain way based on how you hold your body. When your um, palms are open, okay, um, so thumbs are slightly turned out, that is going to send a subconscious signal to the person that you're communicating with that you are listening, that you are open to receive their information and that you want to connect. Same is true of someone that you don't want to hear from. If you turn the palms in towards you and if you have the backs of your hands showing to somebody that you're actually wanting to end the conversation or you're getting frustrated by what they're saying, that sends a subconscious signal that you're actually dominant and you're not prepared to um, stick around and listen to what they have to say. When doing a speech, I um, have watched a TED talk on this and there's some key things that came out of preparing a speech. I know for myself, I talk very fast, I get quite passionate and I, I don't really do enough pauses but I've got a list in front of me here. And if you're about to do a public speech, or if you're going into an interview, or if you need to have a challenging conversation, or if you want to put yourself online or a podcast, and you want to be heard, I need to keep checking into these because I don't do them enough. But here are the key things that are going to help you to deliver that information in the most effective way that it can be received. So a neutral position, so that means you're not massively wide with your body language, you're not at the back of the room, you're not like way in front, so it's intimidating, you're just in a neutral position. Your volume has to change from um, high to low. When you have something really important to say, do an effective pause, so just take a little pause first, and then move on to the next point, and that just kind of sets up the important point, step forward at the same time that you are about to deliver this point, vertical movements, so you can sit down, obviously then stand up, you can crouch a little bit, you can use gestures with your hands, put them above your head, a thoughtful pause, a little bit different to an effective pause, so an effective pause just is about to set up a big statement or an important point, a thoughtful pause usually will come after you've said something of note. Really important point. And I've made my point. That was a thoughtful pause. Vary the tempo. That's always going to help. And me being dyslexic, I cannot even read that last word. <laughs> so we're going to leave it at that. Anna four. Okay, I need to do more notes. I need to look what that means. Anna 4, if anyone knows what that means, that's also useful when doing a speech. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? 
Anyway, don't know what that means. I'm sure one of you will know or I will find out afterwards. So, this is, I think, what we're moving on to now. One of the most important things that will save your relationship, your romantic connection, your marriage. Um, it's something I spoke about with mum. Loads of you will know this already. And this is, of course, love languages. There are five main love languages and each love language is a preferred, usually a preferred way that someone likes to receive and give love. So when we embark on a loving relationship, if we're not aware of this, we will just show our love in a certain way. So you might show your love by lots of physical touch, by hugs, by strokes, by holding hands, lots of physical touch. Unfortunately, that is one love language. Your partner may not appreciate physical touch. They may speak, metaphorically, the love language of quality time. So quality time would be they value spending lots of time, quality time, frequent time with their partner. And that to them is how love is spoken. That is how love is portrayed, given and received. So the five love languages are physical touch, acts of service. So often men can be quite good at this in that they like to be needed. So they will show their love through doing acts of service, often not in the ways that we want them to do it. We really just want them to do the ironing or do the cooking, whereas they might think that painting the garage is the best acts of service or creating a new car or something. However, acts of service, that's one. Words of affirmation, more often than not, but not always, females like to be reassured verbally. Okay, gifts given, and then as mentioned, quality time. So you can tap into Google Love Languages quiz and find out what your preference is you can kind of probably figure it out. I know just through going down this list that I very much appreciate quality time with a loved one and I appreciate physical touch. I also appreciate gifts given. Um, unfortunately, my partner doesn't really give that many gifts um, and the other two we align on, so that's great. But if my partner, which she does, really values and a love language she speaks is words of affirmation. Initially in the beginning, I didn't really say much about how I felt towards her. I didn't feel I needed to. I felt our quality time together expressed all the love that I felt and I thought it clearly demonstrated that I was communicating that I loved her because we spent lots of time together. Same as physical touch, doing a massage, holding hands, snuggling up on the couch, I felt that that was enough to show her that I loved her. I very rarely said to her, I love you, I appreciate you, I value you, I like these qualities in you, you look really beautiful. It just wasn't within my nature because that's not my love language. It doesn't, it doesn't naturally come into my thinking that that's how I need to show the love. Now I know that that is really important to her. Obviously, I make a point of expressing love in that way. So I've essentially taken on another language and we use that 
makes me feel a little bit icky and a little bit cringy when she tells me she loves me as much as she does. I'm like, I don't like it because it doesn't, it's not my language. It's not how I receive love. If she didn't tell me ever, it would be fine because I genuinely don't need that to feel the love. But if she stopped spending quality time with me, I would really question the authenticity of our love and our connection. So knowing your partner's love language and actively implementing that and communicating in that way, super important. So they are physical touch, acts of service, words of affirmation, gifts given, and quality time. Nice segue on time. I appreciate we're running out of time. I'm going to end on talking about and communicating with children. It absolutely breaks my heart when I see an adult screaming at a child when you can see, even though you don't know what they're being screamed at about, you can clearly see the child does not understand. Children do not communicate at the same level that adults do. It's a learning, it's a progression. They don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the wisdom, they don't have the communication skills. So when a child is being screamed at, and very rarely do they even understand what they've done wrong, or let alone know why they're being screamed at, it's a real, a real source for concern for me. Obviously, I can't say anything or do anything in that moment. I just observe it time and time again. An example might be a child runs away in a busy car park. Finally, the mum finds, or the dad, find the parent finds the child, pulls them back in, smacks them on the bottom, or doesn't smack them, but shouts at them, what are you doing? Don't run away. Obviously, in that moment, the child has no idea why they're being screamed at. We know as adults that being in a car park is busy, that child might get run over, the child was lost momentarily. All the child knows is the sun's shining, the beach is across the car park, yay, we're here to play, it's the weekend, I get to spend quality time with my parents, and I have a natural instinct to play, and I want to run to the beach. Now that child is dragged back into the car park, kicking and screaming, um, being punished for something it doesn't understand and the core memory of that morning or that day will be that for whatever reason unknown to this child it got punished and shouted at in public for doing something it had no idea what was wrong. The point I'm making, very long-winded way of saying this and I'm sure you can think of example after example after example because I've certainly witnessed thousands of examples over the years is that we have to communicate to children in a way that they can understand. So, why do you not want to... Um, oh, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, okay, no, you can't have another sweet. You've already had 20 sweets. But I want... Explain to the child the blood sugar in your body after eating 20 sweets is seriously going to be harmful to you. It's going to mean you can't sleep, which means you're going to be angry. It means that you're going to get crazy and probably beat up your brother. Maybe that's not the best example. Um, why can't I just run away because I feel like playing? Because there's dangers out there. I can't find you. I can't see you. I can't hear you. I don't feel like you're safe. Whatever the explanation is, you need to explain to your children 
in a way that they will understand. Getting down to their level, super important, so they don't feel intimidated and scared. Um, calming them down before delivering the message. So when you're um, screaming at a child, they're going to mimic your behaviour. It's just, it's just natural instinct. So if you're angry, a child will feel that anger and start to be angry. If you're sad, they'll do the same. If you're happy, they'll do the same. They're little sponges, the children. So if the child is all um, stressed out because you're stressed out, you then need to let the child calm down. Equally, yourself needs to calm down before a message can be heard in a neutral mindset and they can understand the message. So children obviously have tantrums. There is no point trying to give them a life lesson or explain something to them when they're screaming their head off. You have to wait until after the fact and so they can receive that information when they're in a calm state. Often I think parents get or adults get really frustrated with children when they act in a certain way um, without explanation. Children know how they feel. Children express those feelings. As adults, we've learned to suppress and hide our feelings. So when a child is crying or angry or sad or wetting the bed or playing up, picking on their sisters, whatever, obviously there's something going on there. So to get cross at them isn't helpful. As adults, as a mature, wise um, version of their little mini-me's that we are, we have to figure out what are they communicating to us. Obviously, we do this when they're babies. You have to just guess. But I think we, unfortunately, put too much pressure on children from maybe the age of five through, I don't know, 12, that they're expected to know how they feel, communicate that effectively through words, and therefore um, not make us feel uncomfortable that they're acting in a way that doesn't suit the environment. So I think we need to take more responsibility as adults. Um, I do a lot of work in schools and there's a lot of naughty children. There's a lot of poor behaviour, disrespect, disturbance, um, swearing, all this. Obviously, that's because they're struggling. Obviously, that's because there's some some stress or drama or turbulence in their life. I'm not going to get cross at this child. I need to find out why they're acting in that way and speak to the vulnerable, broken, hurt child in front of me, not just get cross at them. I feel like I'm slightly preaching about how to be a parent here. Um, I, I just, I just want to try and help adults to help kids because kids are unable to communicate. They don't have the, this awareness, this self-awareness, but they are communicating in the best way they know how, and it's up to us to um, work out the puzzle, to undo the riddle, and to help them to then understand that they have other ways in which they can communicate, um, whether it's talking, whether it's drawing, whether it's going outside and playing, whether if they're angry instead of throwing things, it's punching a punch bag. Um, if they're stressed, maybe they need to pop some music in or go into nature. So um, I think we can go a long way to helping our children with how to communicate. The very last thing I want to just touch on is how we communicate to ourselves. Unfortunately, most of our thoughts, and I've mentioned this before, 
our repeat thoughts of the day before. We have about 80,000 thoughts a day and around 80% of those are negative thoughts. So we are constantly repeating negative thoughts about ourselves, um, beating ourselves up and putting ourselves down. Partly this is due to evolution and it helps to find fault in ourselves in which then we can use that as a way to improve and develop. But more often than not, it's just a learned behavior to constantly put ourselves down. So I recommend that you try to say something really nice to yourself and just see how that fits and, and sits with you. So if I was to say, just in my head, but for this purpose, I'll say it out loud, Livy, you're so beautiful inside and out. You're really kind and considerate and you're really um, insightful and thoughtful. For me, that doesn't make me my skin crawl and make me feel icky and gross. It used to when I would say stuff like that. But if giving yourself a compliment makes you feel uncomfortable, chances are you probably need to compliment yourself more and potentially you're spending most of your time putting yourself down. You have to ask yourself how that's serving you and whether that's helpful. Other ways we can talk to ourselves often we'll say, oh no, I can't do that. Oh no, no, I, I don't have the skill for that. Oh, I'm never going to do that. Oh, I haven't done that. One word I love to add on the end, I started doing this about five years ago, is yet. So I haven't done that yet. Oh no, that's not really within my realm yet. Get the idea so it opens up the opportunity and possibility because how we think and how we talk to ourselves determines our behaviour. Our behaviour determines our belief system. Our belief system determines our sense of self and place in the world. So everything starts from a thought and how we communicate internally about ourselves is going to dictate how we put ourselves out there in the world. So if we're constantly communicating with ourselves that we hate ourselves, we loathe ourselves, we're ashamed, we're embarrassed, whatever bullshit we tell ourselves on repeat, that's going to play out on our actions and how we um, go about our lives. So the only way we can positively change our lives is to positively change our thoughts about life, but more importantly, about ourselves. So I appreciate I've covered a huge amount. A couple of um, things, apologies, I got a little bit sort of passionate and sidetracked and potentially might not have made any sense, but hopefully I've got a few key points across the line. Um, a takeaway, so a little bit of self-work, a little bit of homework for next episode would be active listening. So repeating something that someone said and then expressing your opinion on top of that. I think that's a beautiful way to show that you're connecting and you're communicating. And also being interested in others is far more important than being interesting to others. Thank you so, so much for listening. Oh, we've managed to keep it under the hour mark. Um, I will see you next time and good luck out there communicating with as many people as you can. All right, take care. Bye. Not quite finished yet. Two little nuggets that I forgot to add on into the podcast. One is that men and boys definitely open up more when they're moving. So if you're having issues with your teenage son or if you're on a date and you know that you're going to freeze up if you're having a coffee, 
and you're a bloke, go for a walk instead because you're going to find it so much easier to communicate whilst walking. And the other thing is children are sponges. So how you communicate to other people, they will mimic. So if you shout at your partner or if you have low patience and you're cross on the phone or if you don't talk at all, if you struggle to open up and you don't express your emotion around your children, they will do exactly the same. They learn everything from your behavior. Communication is no exception. So even if you find it super intimidating and daunting to change your communication style or even try and communicate a little bit more if you hate a phone call. If your kids are watching, do it for them because it's so important for them to learn the right ways to communicate and the right life skills when they're young because that's what they will do when they are adults. And of course, we want to teach them the right way. All right, that's it from me. Till next time, bye.